Right now, we're collecting all the lessons learned from both Ian and Nicole so that we can implement those changes for the next upcoming year. And really beginning in January, we'll start training for the next storm season. We'll have workshops, um, whether management teams getting together and doing all sorts of training all the way through the spring. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. America's electric companies prepare year-round for extreme weather events and they make investments and upgrades to prevent power outages and to speed up restoration when outages do occur. Florida Power & Light has weathered several intense hurricanes in recent years. When Hurricane Ian struck in September, they were able to restore power to millions of customers within two days of beginning power restoration. Today, FPL's Executive Director of Emergency Preparedness, Tom Gwaltney, is joining us to talk about how the company prepares for severe weather, the proactive investments and upgrades the company has made to enhance reliability and resilience for, for customers, and I also plan to ask about FPL's new drone that is helping them speed along their restoration. Tom, great to see you and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. So. Electric companies plan and prepare for extreme weather events, but this is especially important for FPL and its customers, considering that really your service area takes the brunt of many tropical storms and hurricanes every few years. Can you talk about how FPL plans and prepares for storms? And uh, hurricane season has come to an end, so really what type of work gets underway in between the hurricane seasons? Sure, Brian. So really one one key item for us here at FPL, we always say, I mean, within the company, if we're not responding to a hurricane, we're actually preparing for one. Um, And all FPL employees, they actually have a storm role. And we're all told, you know, the day we hire on that you may have your regular job, but you're also going to have a a storm job as well. And that goes for, you know, all the way up to lawyers, no matter what what role they have in the company. Um, and we have a, a very comprehensive plan uh, that we use to respond safely and as quickly as possible to any, you know, hurricane, tropical storm, or any severe weather. Um, each year, so when you talked about or you made the comment about how we are preparing and what are we doing, like, for example, we're just coming off the storm season, and right now we're collecting all the lessons learned from both Ian and Nicole so that we can implement those, uh, those changes uh, for the next upcoming year. And really beginning in January, we'll start training for the next storm season. Um, We'll have workshops, um, whether management teams getting together um, and doing uh, all sorts of training all the way through the spring. And it really culminates at our annual storm uh, drill, which is typically the first week of May. I think next year it's going to, we had to move it up to in late April, but we always will have that. And then we prepare and go right into our actual storm season. In addition, um, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint, we are clearing uh, lines. We clear over 16,000 miles of vegetation from our lines every year. We be, we make sure prior to storm season, we're clearing all of our main uh, feeders that serve all critical infrastructure uh, facilities. Um, we inspect our poles year-round for strength. Um, upgrading and we have you know and i'll talk you know a little probably a little later a little bit more in detail on just some of our resiliency efforts 
um, and then just expect inspecting the power lines. Another key item we have is we actually, from a material standpoint, we will actually uh, ramp up to have enough material to handle a Category 4 storm uh, by, you know, we'll have all that material on hand by June 1, so that in the event we get hit with a major storm like we did this past year, Ian, which was a 4, um, that we have enough material and that's not a bottleneck for our restoration. In addition, we meet with all of our um, county representatives because um, we really want to make sure to we understand what is the most important uh, critical infrastructure facilities they have within that county that they want to make sure that right after storm that we prioritize some of the service too and getting that up and running like night uh, uh, hospitals, 911 centers, emergency operation centers, those type of facilities. And in addition, we also identify, we've identified over a hundred sites that we will use for our staging of our crews and base camps uh, in the event that we are, uh, you know, have, a, have an event. And we want to make sure, so they're, th they're, th they're throughout the state, so that, because you never know where something may hit. And we already have a footprint laid out for every one of those staging sites. We know exactly, one, where's the dining tent, how the trucks are going to park, where's the material going to be, where even all the way down to where the placement of every tower light so the place is lit up well in the evening. So uh, a lot of work goes in, um, you know, pre-season, even before a storm hits, because once the storm hits, we really don't want to be thinking about everything. We want the plan and just be able to execute. We get these staging sites set up typically 24 out within 24 hours. Uh, they're basically mini cities uh, which can provide all the life support services for all the mutual assistance and all the help and support we're getting uh, to to take you know to handle the event. And you know just a quick thought, just a quick comment on the mutual assistance. Um, you know this industry is very very much um, a team effort, and no no one utility can handle any event. And year round we take part in uh, conferences and get together and make sure even share lessons learned between companies so that um, when a when one of us do have an event we're there to help it doesn't matter what logos on anybody's shirt we're all in there together to make sure we get the lights on back for the customer and Tom we're of course focusing on how FPL has been preparing to respond to these sort of severe weather events but what are some of the things that customers can be doing to make sure they're also prepared I think the biggest piece there is really communication uh, we start well in advance of the hurricane season and just prepping and sending out communications to our customer through all the channels. And then as a storm comes closer, we already have um, uh, pre pre scripts basically that we can just adjust to make, uh, you know, to do, um, you know, tailored communication. So that is a, a real important piece. And then preparing folks, um, you know, it's just something as simple as, uh, you know, debris and making sure they, you know, get stuff around the, um, you know, from around their homes because stuff could be flying. And time to cut your trees is not three days before the storm because that will all become uh, airborne once the storm's coming in. And, and I guess the other thing, too, is, um, you know, there, you know, every storm is different and no grid is storm proof. Um, you know, no matter what we do, there will be outages and customers, uh, you know, will be interrupted. The key is um, being able to respond to that. And we talked about all the different things from a resiliency standpoint and um, that can really mitigate uh, that and get the customers back up and running. Because there's 
basically there's no way to avoid every type of outage and something's going to happen and you just got to be prepared and have a system that can, you know, uh, that can hold up as best as possible so that you can go and restore it. And can you talk a bit about the types of resilience investments and grid hardening upgrades that FPL has made in recent years? Sure. So uh, it, it's a multi-pronged approach that we have. Um, you know, it all it starts with our pole inspection program. We inspect all of our distribution poles on an eight-year cycle. Uh, vegetation management, I mentioned it a, a minute ago, uh, trimming, uh, you know, all of our feeder, our main backbone lines are trimmed every three years, and then our lateral lines on a six-year uh, cycle. So we have a robust uh, plan there. In addition, we do mid-cycles uh, trimming, which takes a look in some, you know, in Florida, uh, we may not get the extreme cold weather that other parts of the U.S. Ha have. However, with the climate, it's constantly growing season. So our trees and our vegetation never stops growing. And, you know, a palm tree, for example, can regrow a palm from within three to six months. So we can trim that. And then six months later, that could be coming close and getting back into the line. So we have to have a robust program there. Um, our transmission structures uh, are steel or concrete. Matter of fact, uh, this Friday in FPL's legacy territory, uh, we'll be removing the last wood transmission structure on our system. So it's been a, a, a long journey, but uh, we're finally coming to completion on that. In addition, um, just the smart devices. We've really uh, made a lot of investments in the, in the smart devices, our automated feeder switches. We have automated lateral switches and even automated uh, transformer switches that we've begun installing. So a lot of automation out there where we can restore power, you know, even before the first crew gets out there. As uh, long as there's no fall in between those sections, um, so you're able to kind of isolate where the problems are and, and reroute power to customers. Absolutely. So, for example, during EN, we actually um, were able to avoid uh, 400,000 customer outages just by our uh, automated feeder switches rerouting the power as a storm was coming through our system. Because we talk about resilience, and of course, hardened structures are a piece of that, but it seems like having that redundancy in the system and kind of those additional pathways for the power to travel is also a way to help enhance the overall resilience of the system. Absolutely. It's, you know, we, we, we kind of comment and say, we want to, we want a smarter and stronger uh, grid. So it's kind of combining the two may harden the facilities, but also making it more intelligent. And People probably don't think about innovation when they hear installing power lines, but you also have done quite a bit of work and your team has done quite a bit of work on undergrounding. And it seems like across the country for, for different reasons, obviously there's wildfires in the West and ice storms in kind of the, the central areas of the country in New England. But it seems like undergrounding is kind of one of those technologies where folks are getting better and better and it's becoming a little bit more cost effective in places. Absolutely. So, you know, we embarked on our hardening program on our main feeders and backbones right after the 04 and 05 season. And um, it was a combination of, you know, we did, there are some that we, sections that we undergrounded and we did the hardening. But as we came to the, as we're wrapping that up and should within the next, um, by 2025, 2026, finish that, we've already started working on our laterals. And one thing then we looked at the economics and the um, just overall, reliability and resiliency, we're actually have just embarked on a program that we've piloted for a couple of years and now going full speed ahead and you have an approval for it 
but undergrounding our lateral lines. Those are your neighborhood lines within, you know, subdivisions, et cetera. And we planned, and it's a long journey, but by 2045, we should have all of those lines actually put in, put underground. And so that'll be a huge uh, benefit. And as an example, during Hurricane Ian, the undergrounding uh, facilities in the same area uh, uh, were five times better and more reliable than those of the overhead lines. Um, even though we did have some flooding in certain areas, um, you know, we were lucky that when the, when the, uh, uh, when the water did recede, uh, we were able to uh, clean some of those facilities and get stuff back up and running. And as an industry, we always are looking at issues that are important to customers. And of course, you're, it's always balancing reliable, affordable, resilient, clean. As you've been making these investments and plans in recent years, I imagine it's been important for you all to be engaged with the policymakers and with the regulators who also have the obligation to make sure that these sort of investments are being done in a way that's cost effective for customers. Absolutely. And as I kind of mentioned, after that 04 and 05 season, um, you know, we had seven hurricanes, four of them were major in that period of 18 months. Um, our customers, you know, people were commenting, is this the new normal? Um, our customers were not very happy. Um, the regulators were not, you know, overly happy. And even the, you know, our own employees, you know, we were, everybody was frustrated and tired after two long, uh, grueling seasons. And we knew then we really needed to do something different. And that's when we embarked on that hardening program and then actually, you know, went to our regulators and our public service commission and, um, you know, explained what we were going to do. And it's really paid tremendous uh, dividends, um, especially when you look at the performance. Um, so, for example, Hurricane Charlie um, came in at the exact uh, spot as Hurricane Ian. However, Ian, they both came in at 150 miles an hour when they made landfall. But Ian was much larger. Matter of fact, you could fit the entire, there's pictures where Charlie, that entire storm could fit inside just the eye of Hurricane Ian. And Ian was a much slower storm as it crossed the state. And yet, you know, when you look at the comparison on how our system, you know, performed, we were able to get um, the customers, uh, you know, back up and running within just, uh, I think Charlie was a total of 13 days and Ian was actually only eight days. Um, so you, you could see the benefit, uh, you know, just from the restoration. Um, you could take a look at, we didn't lose one transmission structure during Hurricane Ian. So our transmission system held up extremely well. Uh, we did have six flooded substations, um, but we were able to reroute through our transmission system to get things up and running where the substations did not hinder, you know, getting the lights back onto the customers. But um, uh, just tremendous uh, benefits we saw through that. And like for us in Florida, when you look at the economic piece, um, Florida is over a $1 trillion economy. And we serve over half the state of Florida. And when you look, when our customers are out for, for just one day, it's over a billion dollars to the Florida economy. So forget about, you know, uh, you know, lost revenue, this, that, and the other. The actual, um, you know, revenue loss to the state of Florida, you know, is significant for every day that, you know, the customers, uh, our customers are without power. Certainly. And that 
obviously there's always the conversation of how do you assign value to resilience and that's certainly a tangible example i know um DU, Department of Energy, one of their national labs recently had updated their interruption cost estimate or ICE calculator. And uh, we're going to be talking for one of our upcoming episodes with the folks over at EFRI for their climate ready modeling. But it seems increasingly folks are looking at the impact of, of climate change and severe weather and really taking a deep dive into how to value these resilience investments. Because uh, as we've seen with the, the hardening and the smart sensors installed in Florida in the past decade, you've really been able to shave off those restoration times for your customers. You know, I, I talked about the total days to restore. And just for an example, during um, Charlie, the average customer was out three and a half days and Ian, it was only one and a half. So we were able to get so many customers back on so much quicker in the majority. And then you even be able to cut off the tail. And a lot of that had to do with the, the smart technology and the, you know, we have a, um, over 5.8 million customers and they're on the, you know, we have the smart meters and we're able to, you know, be able to understand you know, who's out, who's not out. A customer doesn't even have to call us. We're able to know when they're out. And then even before, a, a, you know, a group of crews may leave a neighborhood, we can ping all of those meters to make sure everybody has lights before they even leave. Because so many times you may have a nested outage or you don't, you can't really see something to the naked eye. Maybe it's a, a loose connection to a customer's home. And then the crews are leaving and then everybody has power, but, you know, all the neighbors and that one poor customer still have their lights out. And, you know, you've got to try to work to get a crew back in there, and that could take a lot longer. So it really helps even with the customer satisfaction. And there were obviously massive impacts to communities that were on the kind of southwest coast of Florida where Ian came ashore. I mean, looking at the, the photos, and I'm sure what your crews experienced in the communities that you serve, a lot of damage to homes and structure and businesses. For some of that hardened infrastructure, though, some of those uh, concrete poles, how did those fare in those communities? Because I imagine those are critical for when customers are ready to receive power. It, it's important to have that infrastructure there. Yes, sir. So uh, a, a glaring example was... Um, so on Fort Myers Beach, for example, um, and I remember Governor DeSantis coming down and doing a press conference there and, you know, buildings were destroyed, um, wiped out. There was up to, you know, we've seen reports between 12, 15 foot storm surge coming through and um, just tremendous amount of damage. But right there on the island, when you look down the main uh, street, you could see every one of the concrete, the buildings were gone, things were all over the place all the poles were still standing. In a lot of cases, the wire was still up as well. And then we noticed on some of the laterals, some of the poles had come down, but not, uh, not all of them. And we expected pretty much total devastation. And we were very pleased to see we did not have near the infrastructure damage uh, that we anticipated. We had a lot of damage in these uh, electrical rooms and what we call vaults electrical vaults that serve those large condominiums and, and hotels, et cetera, where, you know, the, the water had totally submerged that, those. We actually had a car bust through one of the doors that I guess had floated right into it. So we had lots of other stuff that we, we were working on or we had to work on to restore power. But nonetheless, you know, we were able to get the lights back on to Fort Myers Beach, and there really wasn't even a customer to hook onto. 
but we actually, they were really pleased because we went ahead and installed all the street lights so at least they had lighting on there. And then when as people have, you know, made repairs and could get power and temporary power, we were able to serve them. So it's been a real uh, testament to all the uh, in, uh, investments we've made in the infrastructure. And that certainly sounds like it helps speed the restoration. I, I know I've seen hours as the number, but when you have to reset poles during emergency responses, that usually is a pretty, it doesn't sound as easy as just digging a hole and sticking it in. That's a pretty labor intensive process, right? Absolutely. Um, you have to go and, you know, not only do that, you pick up, you got to pick up the wire, put in all new insulators, all new hardware on that pole. Um, and we, you know, our investments, when we first did it, we wanted to turn, you know, a storm, uh, you know, instead of a rebuild into a repair, where now maybe you have a broken insulator, you have, um, uh, you know, debris had flown into the line, the line is down, but you, all you have to do is pick the wire back up and retie it into an insulator, or maybe replace one piece of equipment. You're not having to replace the whole thing, install transformers, all of that, um, extra there's a to your point uh brian there's a ton of work that goes into it's not just as easy as oh it's no big deal you just change out a pole it is extremely labor intensive compared to just uh maybe picking up wire and reconnecting service and that type of thing and fpl has a pretty ambitious goals for deploying solar energy so how did some of those solar projects fare when hurricane Ian came ashore so we have approximately 12 million panels and 1,430 inverters saw actual storm conditions, and we only lost about 28,000 panels, or about 0.25%, and only uh, 3,500 actually required replacement, which was 0.03%. So all in all, uh, held up the, the system held up very well on our solar and, and generation system. And just to add on the generation, uh, as strong a storm as this was, we had no significant damages at any of our uh, generation facilities. And I know following FPL over the years, there's always pretty cool innovative projects going on. And I know your team has been utilizing drones or unmanned aerial vehicles for a while now. But was this the first storm that you used FPL Air Drone 1? And I think when people think about drones, they think about the little handheld things. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how this, this drone is different from the ones they, they might have seen kind of out in the wild. Yeah, no, that's a good point. We had over 2,000 flights we uh, did with our, uh, our drones. And FPL Air 1, as you, as you uh, commented, it is a uh, large fixed-wing aircraft um, with over a 35-foot uh, wingspan. It looks like a small Cessna type plane. You just don't see a pilot or any, you know, uh, that type of thing. Um, it has a lot of technology on it. Uh, we can do, put LIDAR, thermovision, uh, which is like can tell temperature detection. Um, it flew at about uh, just under 5,000 feet, but it can fly at any, any, any um, height necessary. Uh, we, we, it's been a project we've been, uh, we're granted authority with, with, the, with the FAA. Um, very close to them. We, we worked on this. This plane could actually fly for 20, up to 22 hours before needing refueling. In addition, it can fly up to 50 mile an hour winds. So we can actually take this drone and actually fly it right on the back end of a, of a storm. And so we can actually start beginning our, you know, damage assessment process. Uh, one key piece, especially, which we, which was uh, a great um, thing for us and during this during Ian 
is I'm sure you saw pictures of the tremendous flooding, especially in the middle of the state. We had several rivers that crested, roads that were uh, communities that were totally underwater and you know, roads, even I-75, one of the main thoroughfares was actually closed for a couple of days because the water had come up over 75. So, um, but in one community um, in the Arcadia area, we couldn't really even get to, and the only way folks were even getting to go, you know, search and rescue was by airboat. And we had heard stories, there was well over 100 poles down and all kinds of damage in there. And of course, you couldn't, we couldn't put any eyes on there. We were able to fly that drone over that area and you know, like a lot of things, it, it really wasn't as bad as we thought. I think we counted a total of like five or six poles that were actually down. But it gave us great situational awareness. Did we have, you know, we thought at one point we had a huge pocket of damage and, you know, a lot of things were wiped out and then go to, we were able to go and take a look at that footage and actually stream it live back here to our command center and be able to see exactly, you know, uh, what the infrastructure looked like and said, okay, now I know that I, only, I don't need to be putting in a large pot of crews into that area um, because I don't have near the devastation that, uh, you know, you, you were just hearing from, you know, people talking. So in those sort of scenarios, I know working closely with state and local officials also was critical to effective responses. Is that sort of a situational awareness that you're gathering stuff that you're able to share with the local authorities and the highway crews that might have to help open roads and gain access, those sort of pieces of the response equation? Absolutely. We actually shared the, the, the footage with, with the state and the FAA had uh, uh, footage as well because it was the first time it's ever been used for any type of event or, you know, anywhere, uh, especially a, a fixed wing uh, aircraft like this. So it was very beneficial. It was a, it was a great learning experience for us. And as we were, you know, each flight that that FPL Air One flew, uh, we said, oh, you know, maybe we can, ha we, we were looking for other opportunities and it's really gonna open the door, I think, for the entire in, in industry and for all electric companies um, in the future of utilizing these drones uh, to help, you know, that immediately after a storm. And then if you can, and then taking that data and if you could take a, you know, understand and use uh, AI and, and change detection and determine exactly what you need and what's, what's damaged and what's, and, and be able to turn that information around quick. I mean, you would even need folks, you know, boots on the ground that may take us several days or a couple days to go assess. You're going to get that assessment just within hours, if you can utilize, you know, drones and 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 the and, and the technology continues to improve. And this just seems like you're such a great person to speak to this, but the human element is obviously crucial. And you had mentioned a lot of the mutual assistance crews that come to help. And we always talk about the sequencing where you complete the assessments, you prioritize the critical facilities like hospitals and police stations and gas stations and such. Um, I guess a back back way of saying there's a lot of folks who are always asking, why don't you just have 50,000 crews pre-staged ready to go day one? But there, there's a process of gathering the information to make sure that you're you're ensuring an effective response rather than just everyone run out and start fixing things. Your, your team really does a lot to choreograph this response just to really make sure it's an effective response, but uh, really to keep the workforce safe as well. And I think that's the key, your, your last point. Safety is, is by far the most, uh, the top priority, not just for, you know, 
the employees and all of the crews that are there working, but also the public as well. So that's that's really takes the, our top priorities, making sure everything's safe. And then when you bring in these resources, you need to make sure you have the proper logistics and ready and ready for them. You know, as you mentioned, if let's just say, hey, if I had twenty thousand people, I could do it in you know five days instead of ten days. Let's just say, for example. But that may not be also, you know, how efficient would you be with all those resources there all at one time and you don't have the lodging uh, set up because like I, I mentioned on the base camps, you know, we will bring in mobile sleepers. They have to sometimes set up tents. Um, you know, are we utilizing hardened structures like schools or gymnasiums or those type of things, churches to be able to house crews? So there's lots of different things you're going to have to do depending on, you know, the you know, the type of storm, where it hits, and how many staging sites. Even this last one with Ian, you know, we we created three or four staging sites that we had not ever utilized before. Uh, some because the ones we, the one we typically utilize was flooded. Others, um, it's just you want to get the crews as close to the damage as possible. Um, so, because that way you eliminate that travel time and they can be, you know, more productive. So it's very key for us to have those folks, you know, as close as possible. And um, that's really a, a, a key piece as well. And I guess we'll, we'll part with just the focus on lessons learned and how thoroughly our, our member companies really look at each incident to see ways in which they can enhance efficiencies and increase safety and all those elements. You just mentioned more distributed uh, lay down yards for materials. And if I recall correctly, uh, at the onset of the pandemic, I know there was a lot of work to make sure we could keep our workforce safe. And some of that was to spread out some of these material yards just to reduce the amount of people who were around. But it seemed like a lot of people recognized that's actually a really efficient way of doing this to, like you said, cut down on travel time and get some of the materials closer to the facility. So did that just happen based on the flooding or, or was that kind of one of the lessons learned that you all had taken away from some of the, the restorations that happened during the onset of the pandemic? Um, it, it's a combination. I mean, we, we have been going down this route for several years now about really trying to increase that productivity and getting those crews closer. We actually own uh, 2,500 beds, uh, you know, in, in mobile sleepers that we deploy. So we actually have, you know, have made investments even in that. Um, and as you, as you said, just get, you know, every storm is different. We, um, we learn from everyone. We even learn from storms where we go and support other utilities. And I'm, sh and, and I can tell you, they learn from us. And as I mentioned earlier too, you know, we have those conferences and the EEI um, mutual assistance meetings that we have twice a year. It's also an opportunity for co corp companies and, um, you know, electric companies like ourselves to go ahead and say, hey, this is what worked well. This is what did not work well. And so that everybody can learn from each other because, um, you know, I, to me, there's no industry like the electric industry that we all stand up for one another and we're all and we share. We're not trying to hide anything and we're all trying to, you know, be the best we can be. So I think that's just a, a key piece in this in, in all of this. But, you know, we have really gone down the lessons learned every storm. And, and like you said, you know, getting clues crews closer, just the amount of material. You talked about the pandemic. Our, uh, we actually ended up uh, developing a 135-page, you know, pandemic guideline just on storm restoration. Um, we retook every one of our 
you know, processes and actually redid it, you know, because of the pandemic. Um, and there were lessons learned. And one of those was going to, instead of these large mega sites and having 2,500 people at them, of having, why not have five sites with 500 people? You know, it requires more management teams and it requires some additional personnel, but it also can get crews closer. Um, and then you also, with the, like from the pandemic, we were able to utilize, you know, larger footprints and spread folks out to, you know, avoid any, um, you know, mass outbreaks. And I think the uh, electric utility industry did a, um, a great job during the pandemic and, you know, through all the storms that, uh, that happened in 2020 and 20 and, tw and 2021, you never, we net across the country um, and we participated and supported all of those. Um, we, there was no massive outbreaks on by any company uh, from a pandemic. So it just, it showed how utilizing guidelines that we all worked together to develop and uh, working together, uh, we were able to keep, you know, our employees and, and all those workers safe. Well, really, thank you for all that you do every day, obviously, for, for your customers, but being a critical piece of the cavalry when you happen to be spared from storms. So I, I know uh, recipients of aid one day are kind of the givers of aid the next. And uh, I think we see a lot of that cooperation and, and teamwork really across Florida and that part that unfortunately you might see storms more than most, but it's it's just really great to see the work that you and your team are doing every day. Well, it's definitely a team effort and uh, you know, we're very blessed here to have, you know, a great a great team and we are very you know, and likewise within the industry and knowing that we can call you know, anybody and our neighbors and they're they're coming to to help uh, to help us uh, restore just as if they're in trouble we're there to help them so it's really a it's really a team uh, when it comes to the restoration after any event for for all the electric companies thanks so much for joining us thanks brian and that's our show for today thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner smarter stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve you can subscribe to our podcast on spotify itunes podbeam or wherever you get your podcasts just search electric perspectives i'm your host brian real thanks for listening